0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I wanna help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together because we're all out of patience. Hello, friends, welcome back. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, and you're listening on apple podcasts please leave us a rating a review it helps other people find the show you know or don't either way huge show today folks with dr lisa richardson division director of cancer prevention and control at the cdc the cdc as the first guest i've ever had on the show with a BS in zoology lisa's the real deal she's down to earth she speaks person and science simultaneously and she's been a 25-year first-hand witness to the staggering revolution and evolution of cancer care across these united states in this rapid fire no stupid questions episode lisa and i talk about everything from simulated humans plummeting screenings mrna and telehealth to 1990s-era patient activism, the rise of cancer survivorship, cancer and COVID, and the prospect of 2021 vaccine parties being the exact opposite of pox parties. Hilarity ensues today. Enjoy the show. Lisa Richardson, thank you so much for joining me here at Out of Patients. My listeners know that I tend to spiel on control people's LinkedIn profiles before I even get to know them. And I really can't help but start out by asking you, where does zoology fit into your backstory?
0: My backstory on zoology is that that was the major I chose to prepare for medical school. That's the only reason I did it.
1: And how did that pan out?
0: Well, I got into medical school, (laughs) I'm a doctor. Um, working at the CDC, so it panned out pretty well.
1: So help me understand and unpack a background, and not in pre-med, or does zoology count as pre-med, or learning about yeah. mammals mm-hmm. and amphibians, does that predispose you in a better sense to appreciate the medical profession?
0: I don't think it did, but it was a science major, and I had to take all the classes that would um, you'd need for medical school, and I thought it would be cool. So I really, to your question, I don't think I ever thought I would use it specifically, but I guess I would have if I hadn't gotten into medical school. So um, that's the backstory on that.
1: Did it encourage you to have any more pets than normal?
0: Uh, No, actually, it did not. I don't think I've had a pet since I was a little kid.
1: So it dissuaded you from having pets, says me.
0: (laughs) Maybe a little bit. Yes. Uh, But no, I just, um, it was a major. It was interesting. I liked studying animals. And so um, that was the major I chose. And also, I thought I had to choose a science major if I wanted to go to med school. So That's what I did.
1: Well, as the first zoology guest on my show, I welcome you again. Help me understand what. This is an open question I ask anyone in the medical profession. What drives people to go into medicine in the first place? Where Where is that dogma principle?
0: So, for me, it was reading Elizabeth Blackwell's biography when I was in fifth grade. So, I wanted to be a doctor since I was in the fifth grade in elementary school, and so. Pretty much from that point on, I was preparing myself to go to med school and to become a doctor. I think it's just really cool that you go out and you help other people. Um, And that has a lot to do with why I chose medicine as well.
1: Wow. Wow. So you have been working in the government for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Was that right out of med school?
0: No, I graduated from med school and went to the University of Florida um, Hospital to do my residency and fellowship. Then I went to Michigan and got my master's degree, and then I came to CDC. So that was in 1997. So I've done a lot of school, too.
1: So your career is as old as my brain cancer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is, actually. Felt, felt like it when I was getting there, too, to tell you the truth. The length of it, I mean, not the cancer part.
1: You know, I, I, I want to talk about how some of the issues we're going to discuss on this show are against this odd backdrop of how far we've come that's kind of hard to see through the lens of the last 20 or 30 years in right. oncology. And if you think about the nineties, that was when cancer was whisper, boogeyman, death yeah. sentence, no support, pre-internet, very analog. And today it's yep. obviously very different. And the issues we have, would you equate that to be nicer to have issues than just kind of dying? Or is it completely a different way to think about what is cancer control? What is population science?
0: So there's like two parts to your question. So the first part is you're absolutely right. When I trained in oncology and I finished in 1995, we were just starting to turn the corner on people. So when I was training, you got cancer, people thought it was a death sentence. But as we go along, you know, like you just said, 20 years, more people are living, living longer. And it's been really hard for us to pivot away from the death part and just trying to keep people alive to helping them live better and longer and better quality of life afterwards. And so when you're in that, what do you call it in the trenches mode, trying to, as you just said a few minutes ago, I want to live. So whatever it takes, that's pretty much how we're having to shift. And it's been difficult to shift towards um, something you live after you get, rather than something you die from. Um, And the second part, I think is you asked about the medical system. So what we do at CDC, looking at population science, is what are, the, what are the interventions we can do or what are the things we can do to increase the health of the population? And that would be physical activity, eating right, um, not smoking. That's where you would see on a population level the impacts of those interventions. But remembering, you know, as an oncologist, the, the tension for me is, the population is what we're focused on, but also we can't forget that the individual makes up the population. And so that's where the tension comes for someone like myself. You know, let's find the cancers and treat it. Um, larger interventions and in populations make the biggest change.
1: I can't help but think it'd be remiss of me to not mention the fact or remind our listeners that you were there in the trenches in the 90s. Yeah. When the, I would say the official patient revolution kicked off in the breast cancer universe, Yep. what was the response back then from the government reacting to American citizens who are just as fed up as the ACT UP AIDS activists?
0: Well, you know, that's actually a quite, you know, that's a very good question because back in the 90s when I came to the CDC, the breast cancer uh, advocacy group, as you just said, they were very active, very passionate. And a lot of the changes in the program that we have for uninsured women happened during my tenure at CDC and my first time around in the cancer control division, getting the program passed in the early nineties, women have follow up after abnormals and then eventually treatment was covered by Medicaid. But I think it was because of a very passionate, um, targeted and focused advocacy effort from uh, women with breast cancer.
1: My first experience with the CDC was when I took a volunteer role at Livestrong in two thousand and four. Yeah. And they handed me this booklet called the National Action Plan for Cancer Survivorship. Yep. That was put together with the CDC and with Livestrong and a couple of other groups. And it blew me away. Yeah that, hey, I'm I'm just a lay person that knows nothing about advocacy. And I'm reading this book that I don't can't imagine any other American would just willingly want to read because it's not like just like it's not, a, it's not like a nightstand kind of thing you want to pick up or whatever really heavy stuff mm-hmm. but let's let's discuss the the gravity of that document
0: Yeah, so that document was really the the first chance to to sort of lay out what cancer survivorship is um, what needs to be done and what the gaps and the needs were cuz back in when that was produced in 2004 even it was a new field that people were just getting into, um, and, as well as the CDC and the other groups that participated. Right after that, the National Academies um, published the um, report on uh, transition into survivorship. And so those two documents together have pretty much led or directed the field over the last couple decades.
1: They really were the cryptexes of their time, setting the stage for here we Correct. are. 16, 17 years later. Right. I, again it can't go understated that this was a time when, you know, we, we can overuse the word revolution as much as we want. But right. this is the time where patience drove policy that drove practice. And I think about something as simple as, and this is a throwback for the listeners, something called the Directors Consumer Liaison Group that was brought out with the National Cancer Institute, which brought advocates in to help shape these documents, a truly seminal moment. But to put in perspective here, talk to us about how there was this transition where it went from let's hope you don't die to let's hope you live well.
0: Right, right. So, like I said, I mean, it was what and it still is one of those things. And it's even with patients who have cancer, that you know, there, there will. It's sort of a, it's a journey, and when you get to the end of the journey, then there's a transition, and you know, we're still struggling. I read something on one of the social media. Outlets that you know when some, when the lady got done with her treatment, she was like, "Now what, right?" And so now we're in that part of the continuum of care of thinking about what's next and what's the best thing for people to do in the next phase after they've had the cancer and it's been treated. It's a huge, monumental task, I think, uh, for every patient that goes through it, and you would know that better than me.
1: I love having these conversations because it really puts such a retrospect and an audit Mm -hmm. on what has happened beneath the mask. It's so easy to get caught up in the fact that, yes, we're here in 2020, 2021, and this happened so long ago, it's hard to even imagine what it was like, but we were there at that time. When did you start to see real response from the consumer space, from the American citizens on the cancer prevention, the non-smoking stuff? Like, when did the Eat Better exercise more and do your best to try and not get it conversation startup
0: well i'd say it's probably about this you know we've known forever about cigarettes right but the science on the lifestyle factors that cause cancer or lead to a higher risk of cancer really has been in the last 20 25 years it's one of those things where though where we're you know working as hard as we can to sort of explain the connection and for whatever reason it seems with the studies that we've done, something that we're working on right now is that the connection between these behaviors and cancer hasn't been, it just hasn't hooked up in people's minds that these things are modifiable. So you would do exercise or be physically active to prevent, you know, becoming overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, but no, people don't connect those behaviors and doing more of them with preventing cancer. So that really is the push right now is to sort of get those Healthy behaviors hooked up to this could prevent cancer and could prevent another cancer from happening again if you've had one previously. So that really is the thing we're doubling down on here at CDC is working on our communications and trying to do better with that.
1: You know, one of the things that the CDC does that most people would probably not know you do is workforce empowerment and making sure that you talk about that, too. That's really important.
0: Yeah, so t- just to, to to educate providers as well as educate patients um, to train more um, epidemiologists type, health services researcher types, and uh, just to get out on the ground and do the work with the people and train, you know, in public health how to inter- uh, implement these interventions in communities um, as well. So that's really the main place that we're working in right now.
1: So let's go into this. You can debate this anyway, which way to Sunday, but screenings have changed dramatically. You know, this year it's this age, this year it's that age, this year it's covered, this year it's not. From your global perspective, right. having been there for such a long time, is there any sort of consensus on, we're all trying to do this to help people not get sick, but wherein lies right. the rub in, in coming up with something cohesive and conclusive?
0: So the biggest challenge with the cancer screening recommendations is that you probably just stated it another way is that there's so many of them. And they're not all consents, um, you know, going in the same direction necessarily. But what I would say is that there are places that we agree on screening, which is what's the age to start. There's been a lot of controversy in that in breast and colon and rectal cancer recently. But we would say, you know, your middle age. 45 to 50 years old, um, the intervals, one to two years, colon cancer, 10 years. But it really is an evolving science. And that's the other thing, like with the pandemic, when people get upset about, you know, the changing recommendations, it's the same with screening. The more we learn, they're going to change and people just have to feel comfortable with that.
1: Yeah. Not easy.
0: Not easy (laughs) at all. Yep. All
1: right. So another question I have, Kind of goes back to you've done a lot of work with a lot of advocate groups on this magic word like carcinogens in our food, right? Food safety. It's one thing to talk about, well, eat better and avoid this, and donuts don't make good on your hamburgers. It's another thing to try to unpack how industry gets all these multi syllable things in things you eat and there's no regulations or no one's calling them out.
0: Right. So in that area, you know, that's not what we specifically do here at CDC. So I would say, to your point, as few preservatives in your food as possible. If you can get it fresh, canned foods are very good as well. If, you know, it's fresh out of the field, but to just, you know, I don't know, I guess people call it what do they call it now, eating clean, but, um, you know, to eat fresh fruits and vegetables if you can, if not, eat this, you know, less meat. That's a hard one for all of us, right? But just to, you know, to eat a balanced diet and um and you don't need vitamins if you do that. And so, but that's the hard sell because people want to eat what they want to eat and drink what they want to drink.
1: So, let's move on to talk about the role what specific role the CDC plays in terms of standards and best practices and how you work with groups like let's say the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or the Academy of uh, Cancer Research, the ACS, we're looking to make sure that when patients enter that store, that they never wanted to shop in, right, they are aware of what their choices are. And there's no like Abe Simpson, Walmart greeter to tell them what to do. (laughs) Uh, Talk to us about how like the experience of the patients matters through this lens of what the CDC tries to influence.
0: So I think from my point of view, you know, as the director of the Division of Cancer Prevention and Control, is really to provide information in a format that is digestible and understandable by the patient. So one of the things we've been pushing towards in our communications are working with, for instance, one thing we've developed in the last two or three years are simulated humans that can interact with, that patients can interact with. Um, One is for triple negative breast cancer treatment, one is for prostate cancer treatment, but to provide um, tools that are more, you know, today type style other than paper and to really just help patients walk through the experience and know what to expect because, you know, unless you've had cancer, it's just, you know, you just can't even imagine what it's going to be like.
1: Back with our guest after the break. So picking up where we left off, we can't not talk about the massive elephant in the room as of this recording it's you know <laughs> mid-january in 2021 there's covid yeah it's a thing it's horrible there's nothing good to talk there's no hallmark card to buy on the shelf that makes it any better for anyone <laughs> right. in the world the cdc has played a prominent role clearly we go i mean even prior to this like with ebola and stars like It's institutional to help people get through this, but specifically through this lens of cancer, it's wrecked screenings. It's wrecked compliance. What have been your main observations on the early data coming in from what it's done so far?
0: So the main observation from like May through this, like March, sorry, through the summer is that cancer screenings plummeted to just about zero. Um, As they were coming up in September, I think the last data I saw published, they were about 20% lower than they were in January when this whole thing started, so it came back up. But this was when the pandemic was waning a little bit, so now we're in, you know, it's going up exponentially again. And so I anticipate the screenings are falling off again, not necessarily back to where they were, because providers have put things in place to keep patients safe and patients may feel more comfortable but people are really terrified about going out and getting anything done and it's just trying to get the messages out there call your doctor see what's going on in your community see what they're doing to keep patients safe but not to neglect your, your healthcare
1: right the fallout from this probably won't be seen for months and months and years to come
0: probably years we anticipate you know the models from the National Cancer Institute looks like it may, you know, within two to three years, we would start seeing, actually from last year, 2020, when those data become available, there may actually even be an increase in cancer mortality because people are afraid to go out and get treated or get screened or all the things that you said before. So we'll see how the numbers fall out, but I would anticipate that the number of cancer deaths may even go up in 2020 even.
1: I would be really curious to find out longitudinally The role that telehealth Mm -hmm. played in any oncology conversations as an intermediary solution?
0: Yeah, I think that the substituting out in oncology with telehealth was not as great as let's say primary care, because you need to come in to get your chemotherapy. But some of the data that I saw at the beginning showed that if you were in treatment, your treatment continued. The real challenge was surgery stopped, And if cancers don't get diagnosed, you know, the chemo doesn't happen and all the, you know, a range of, you know, array of care would would occur. And so that's really, I think, where the challenges are moving forward. The prediction is that there'll be higher stage cancers, you know, which are harder to treat, which will lead to more people dying from cancer. So we're really trying to double down on those messages about getting out and getting your care, making sure it's safe, obviously. But the pandemic, we don't feel like it's ever going to end right now, but I, I believe it will end. And we don't want to be so far behind the eight ball that we can't catch up.
1: Right. And for what it's worth, as, as of the taping today, my wife just got vaccinated and my parents who are in their early 70s and vulnerable are getting vaccinated this coming Sunday. So okay hopefully good. that's one nice thing to see today, at least as I'm talking to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. So exactly. So another question I have is, is there any data, dashboard, something American citizen friendly to look at about how the virus may have affected people who have been in active treatment? Or is there is there no way to yet know that kind of like a demographic segmentation?
0: So the, the, the only place I've seen data, uh, Matt, is in the people that use claims data or the people that pay claims, they, they have looked at the volume of services. And what you see is what you just said, everything kind of fell off. And the information I was sharing earlier came from some of those vendors analyzing their data about the volume of people coming through. Chemotherapy dropped, radiation therapy dropped, surgeries dropped. And so hopefully these things won't take too long to come back up, but again, you know we're having a pandemic, we're having a COVID surge And so lots of hospitals have, again, shut down surgeries that aren't, you know, urgent or emergent. But I think what I've read is that hospitals are trying to preserve the oncology surgeries that need to be done because those are more urgent than, you know, let's say a a knee replacement. Right. So I think there's some juggling going on out there in the healthcare system trying to figure out who to treat now and who can wait.
1: Right. Other data that I'm just curious to see met out at some point is, you know, we initially talked about the vulnerable population with weaker immune systems, the elderly. That included some rare disease communities, and that included people either in active treatment that were metastatic living with cancer or only recently perhaps off treatment. Is there a narrative on that, too?
0: So the narrative there is the best that we can tell is that, you know, if you are actively being treated for cancer, your risk of getting COVID may be higher. And you may have a higher risk of having severe complications like being hospitalized. But, you know, depending on which type of um, treatment you're looking at, there are different outcomes. Some seem to be, you know, lead to worse outcomes like um, surgery. If you're like older, have metastatic cancer, the thing you, you mentioned before. So there is a little bit of information out there, but I think it's still so new. It's just really hard to tell. There are several um, groups out there, like the um, COVID Consortium, Cancer Consortium, that are you know tracking people. Hopefully, uh, prospectively, and will know something sooner than later. They published one paper, but I haven't seen anything else from that group.
1: Yeah, I was really surprised, and maybe not surprised. i going to be harsh that you know by April or May there really wasn't like a one stop shop for scared cancer patients in the communities to turn to for layperson right. advice and guidance because everything was just so chaotic. So right. it's still out there. I still get questions all the time from listeners, from from just friends and colleagues and, and executives and whatnot. What do cancer patients do during the pandemic? And this is a true or false round, right? <laughs> yes. The exclusion, inclusion criteria for the vaccines may or may not include if you've had radiation, you can't get it. True or false?
0: Uh, False.
1: Good, because I've been asked that question.
0: (laughs) You should be able to get the vaccine if you've had radiation therapy, yes.
1: So also active treatment, living with certain medications. Are there contraindications on what pills you're currently taking for your regimen that are not in the interest of getting vaccinated?
0: So the biggest contraindication, just knowing how cancer works and how treatments work. The biggest contraindication is, are people who are immunocompromised by their medications, or if they have a cancer that immunocompromised, like a um, lymph node cancer, like lymphoma and leukemia, those obviously, that's where the immune system resides. And so those people um, are definitely at higher risk now. The deal with that is still, you know, to get the, like we recommend the flu vaccine, you'll get the vaccine, you may not have as strong of a response, but I think it would, you know, protect you from getting as sick, similar to what we recommend for the flu vaccine as well. And this virus, you know, this, this vaccine is safe because it's not a live virus. Cancer patients should not be getting live virus vaccines. Right. And, and let's
1: do a one on one here. Like what is mRNA? Because uh-huh. this is not smallpox stuff.
0: No. <laughs> so this is actually kind of interesting. It's the first messenger RNA um, virus that, um, we've developed a vaccine for, um, that the vaccine is actually the messenger RNA. Sorry. Pardon, pardon me for that. Um, so it's the first one. That's why it has to stay so cold. Um, but this is actually the, the RNA is what the proteins are made from in the body. But I think it's safe. It's not a live virus. It doesn't cause disease. And so people should feel comfortable getting it
1: should. Right. Magic (laughs) operative word is should.
0: Yes, Yes.
1: on the next 11 shows we do, do masks work? Totally kidding. We can avoid that conversation (laughs) just for today.
0: Yes, masks do work. Yes, Yes, we
1: we know that. I mean, yeah, we (laughs) could lurch into any sort of conversation at this point, but let's keep on track here. I just have a few more questions in the No Stupid Questions portion of this entire episode. That is every question I ask you. This goes back to the vaccinations and acts to vaccinations that mm-hmm. roll out of vaccinations. And if you're vaccinated, is there a CDC recommendation on should you still wear a mask a month later? Should you not? Will you be judged by society if you don't have to need one, but you, you have to tattoo your I got vaccinated card <laughs> on your chest or something? Where are we at with that? Yeah.
0: So the, the, the what you're asking. So the question, the root of the question is, is. If you had a vaccine, can you no longer transmit the virus to someone else? It kind of sounds kind of weird, but you could still get the virus, but it doesn't make you sick, but you could still transmit it to someone else. So that's the working hypothesis right now. You know, like I said, a lot of more research to be done. So yes, you still would have to wear a mask until we reach that magic number of population vaccinated which people are saying is somewhere between 70 and 90% of people being vaccinated.
1: And that's not including children, right? They're exempt from this for now?
0: No, I, th- I can't remember what the lower age is, but um, children, I can't remember the starting age for the vaccine. My apologies.
1: So masks for on for the foreseeable future right. despite national vaccinations.
0: Right. But, I mean, you'd have to vaccinate enough of the population for that thing that confuses everybody, something called herd immunity. Yes. So, you would have to have 70 to 80% of all Americans vaccinated to actually have herd immunity. So, I see. Um, we got a ways to go <laughs> all right, so, with the current numbers, but we just started. Right. All right.
1: So, final question on behalf of my inner, rip right over hair is left in my head, out of my head parents, school, kids, COVID. Is it feasible to hypothesize? that possibly by the end of next summer schools will reopen nationwide full time
0: I tell you I can't I can't name that every time somebody asks me that I keep putting the date off when we're going to get out of covid um what I call it uh, covid um covid cabin fever yeah but yeah exactly that's what i have but that, i hope by the end of the summer that we'll up to a level of vaccination that that's you know we can put Kids back in school, you know it's a plus minus, and everybody does their own way. So we'll see, but I hope so. I can't say for sure.
1: Well, this has been like password with Chuck Woolery version of questions and answers, (laughs) and I can't thank you enough for this. And I, I will definitely have you back, as I'm I'm a ceaseless engine of of dumb questions that aren't dumb questions, and they keep piling up. So I'm 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 happy to receive your wisdom. And there are
0: no dumb questions, by the way. Nah,
1: yeah, I'm just trying to be Woody Allen here, so go with it.
0: <laughs> you don't look like Woody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, I don't. Anyway.
0: <laughs> just joking with you. Anyway, but no, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Always like talking to you.
1: Likewise, Dr. Lisa Richardson, Division Director, Cancer Prevention and Control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Matt.
1: That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary.